Let's get into Esther chapter 2. Today, I, I said we're going to finish chapter 2 by looking uh, at a, a little more of Mordecai's story. So we've seen Mordecai throughout Esther. Uh, he has played a role in where we are in the story today. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to begin our time by again reminding us of a couple of things. Just to again set the stage for our time. Uh, and then I, I want to just kind of share uh, a little bit um, just from my own personal time in Esther, as I've been reading through this book, as I prepared uh, for the time today, and then we're just going to continue in the story. So again, if you remember, we kicked off this series, and we began with the understanding that Esther is a story of faith that calls us to trust in God, even when we don't see, hear, or feel Him. That's why we have the, the, the title of this series is Unnamed. God's name is not, does not show up one time in this book. And yet, God is at work all throughout the story. And so with that in mind, uh, we laid out a theme in week one, which was God has you here for a purpose. And because of that, we can know, we can find hope, we can find rest and assurance, knowing that God will always keep his promises, even when we feel that he's not there. And we all have moments like that in life, right? Where we wonder, we question, we know that God, I shared a couple of weeks ago, man, we believe maybe generally or specifically that God has a purpose for our lives, but there are times and moments where we say, why? What's going on? We're going to see that even in the story today and moving into next week. And yet we can know, and I believe not simply Esther, but the entire uh, Bible proclaims this over and over again, that God will keep His promises even in the moments when we feel like He's not there. You see, from the beginning, we've, we've seen God's people under the rule and reign of foolish King Xerxes, who lives in foolish ways before foolish men and seeks to foolishly act like a fool by parading his wife around as a symbol of power and lust rather than a woman to be cherished and loved. And then as Xerxes says, hey, bring her out so I can display her before everyone. And she refuses. Xerxes heeds the foolish advice of others. And what he does is he casts Vashti off instead of turning from the foolishness that brought about her refusal in the first place. You see, even here, God is at work. First, pointing us to the reality that we need a better king in Jesus, right? Who would come for his bride, who would live wisely, and even though his people refused and rejected him, he did not send them away, but took the punishment for us, being forsaken by God, so that God would not have to turn his face from us. We then saw it in the story last week. When Mordecai and Esther come into the picture, and God works providentially, even. In the midst of Mordecai and Esther's moments of compromise. As well as Xerxes' wickedness. And what happens is we see that, that it shows us that God can, does, and continually uses broken people who have a past. He can, does, and continually uses a people who have hurt and who have been hurt to fulfill His purpose of bringing glory to His name and rescue for His people. You see, it's good news today that God uses brokenness. 
Because I don't know if you're like me, but while, man, I'm saved by grace, I am a sinner saved by grace who still struggles, who still has moments of deep brokenness and experiences moments of deep brokenness. And yet through it all, if I stop for a moment and reflect Maybe even not in the moment, but look back on the the promise keeping God that we have. I see over and over and over that not only do I have a purpose, but he keeps his promise through it all. And so just as Jeremy shared last week, if you're not dead, God's not done. Because you see the reality of the gospel, which again is good news for your past, present and future. Moves us from our past Uses you in the present. Like do you believe that today? Like God is and wants to use you in the present. And I think for so many Christians. Or so many people that maybe would claim to be followers of Jesus. They live with a past future life. What I mean by that is God has saved me from my past. And one day he will save me in the future. He will take me away from all of this. And then they just live their life in the midst of that. But I believe that that discounts the good news of the gospel. Paul says, man, the old has died. You have a new self. And guess what? That new self is meant to live today. So God moves us from our past. He uses us in the present. And guess what? He gives us a hope for the future. So that's kind of where we've been. And really where we're going to continue in this series. But, but I, really quickly, I just want to talk just for a moment about kind of uh, my own wrestling with Esther recently. So as I've been reading through in preparation and just, uh, man, just for general time, just uh, chewing on this book. And I, I, what I found is I found myself thinking about the ways that this book specifically pulls us into the lives of the characters. I was talking with Haley a couple of days ago and we were talking about Esther and she said, you know, Esther's just one of those books that it's just, I mean, it just really seems like real life because, well, guess what? All the Bible is real life because it's all true, but it's just this, this moment where it just seems raw and real and you just kind of connect to it in a different way, right? I've already said every other book in the scriptures, you see God all over the place. His name, worship of Him, all of these things. He's showing up. But in Esther, man, I think, man, the reason it, it, it's been hitting me differently lately, connecting to me in a different and deeper way, is because, man, I see my own day in and day out life through it. Just the everyday mundane stuff of life just kind of coming forward. But, but even within that, I mean, I see my own life and the characters that are being brought forth. I see my life and their brokenness. I see my own life and their struggle, and even in their triumphs, but also even in the midst of it, I find myself wrestling with my own heart. So, so for for those in the room, just for a show of hands, how many of you you uh, you enjoy like being drawn in by just a really good story? Yeah. 
you know, Tom Rinaldi, you know, college, you know, college football Saturday mornings, like all the men just, you're just crying because you get drawn in by this story, right? That just pulls on your heart. Like you watch a, a move, maybe you, movies and shows that just, man, pull you into the lives of the characters. There, there's a, a redemptive moment, right? Or maybe like how many in the room, like just a good book. Like just pulls you right in and like, man, if the characters get developed and you start to, to, to just go about that. How many parents in the room like Bluey just kind of pulls you in and you're just like at the end of, hey, if you've never seen it, go watch it. I think it's one of the greatest cartoons ever made, uh, thus far. Uh, but it just pulls you in. Maybe for you it's not that. Maybe for you it's like sports or, or, or some kind of competitive, maybe like games. I just kind of pull you, like the real you starts to show up or you watch a football game and you see the underdog and you're like, oh, I want them to win. Right? Like no one wants the Patriots to win anymore, right? Everybody wants the Cowboys to win because we're always the underdog now, right? Like we get that, like there's these moments, and I believe that that is a common grace to our lives. That even in, in the arts and things like that, when we're drawn in, it's meant to point us to, man, our deeper need and our deeper wrestling that ultimately should point us to the one that can meet it. And this is what we get in Esther. I believe it does it all throughout the Bible. But you see, because God is unnamed and yet it worked through it all, Esther is just a bit different. Because it speaks to moments in our own lives where God seems to be unnamed and yet is at work through it all, revealing Himself to us while also making us to wrestle with where we are, putting, where we're putting our faith, where, where we're putting our security and to what or whom we're giving our worship to. I don't know about you, but when I watch or read something that really draws me into the story, it's not simply because of the story, but because the story presses on the areas of my heart and life in ways that make me wrestle with who I am and what I'm called to do. You see, a good story, I believe, uses the triumph and struggle of the hero in the story, but I believe it also, and we see this in Esther all the time. God is even using the brokenness and struggle of the villains. To get at my heart and make me reflect on who I am. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. He says, hey, don't be like Xerxes. But also don't be like Vashti. If you ever watch something or read something, one of the characters, while extremely unlikable, by the end of it, you kind of find yourself not rooting for them because they're wicked and vile, but man, there's something about their struggle and their heartache and their maybe their upbringing that just kind of connects to your life. Or even their response to things, like you see that anger and you're like, wait a second, I kind of do that. You see that angst, you see that response. And while you're not to mimic it, man, it, it reveals something about maybe who you are. It's kind of like the Grinch, right? Like some of you in the room, probably all of you in the room, you're just a bunch of who's, right? Like you love it. Like, but for me, like I watch the Grinch and I'm like, I'm that guy. I'm pretty Grinchy. But I get it, right? Like you get pulled into his story a little bit and you're like, well, maybe there might be some reasons why he doesn't like Christmas. And I can relate to that a little bit. I don't want to mimic that. I don't want my kids to wake up on Christmas morning and I've 
you know, thrown everything out the window. You see, it's really good for us to read story, to dig into story, to to press into the scriptures and only look to the hero and believe, yeah, we're the hero. Guess what? We're not the hero of the scriptures. Only Jesus is. And we've already noted that even Esther and Mordecai and David and Abraham and Moses and, and Paul and, and all these got like, they all, while they did great things around, they still struggled. They still had moments of weakness and sin. And so I hope that we would allow ourselves, even as we look at these characters, as they're drawn out, that we would allow God to do even a work to reveal even areas in our own lives and we wouldn't be blind to it. That we would say, God, like whatever you want to do in this series, do it. You see, Esther reveals to us the realness of life, both in triumph and brokenness, in ways that make us wrestle with not simply the good and bad that we see, but the motivations behind the good and bad. While also revealing to us the God who is the true hero and is at work through it all to bring about glory to his name and rescue for his people. I think one of the biggest things I picked up on is there's so many unanswered moments and questions as you read through Esther. We're going to see one today where something happens and we don't know why. I think in that it's meant to, there's some wrestling in that. Well, how are they going to respond? And so today we'll be met with much of the same. And so let's look now at Esther chapter 2. We're going to read the entirety of the text, 19 through 23. It begins like this. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Okay, so what we get here at the end of Esther 2 is a transition moment from our time last week. And then we're left with just kind of this cliffhanger that's going to lead into our time in chapter 3 next week. So what happens is following Xerxes choosing Esther to be queen, the the rest of the virgins are gathered together a second time. And and we see a couple of pieces of key information here in verses 19 and 20 that I believe are worth noting. But quickly, uh, just in terms of kind of the beginning of the text, we don't get any information regarding why the rest of the virgins were gathered but, but it could have been that they were now going to be sent home or to be sent to, uh, to the, the other palace, to be concubines for Xerxes. We don't know. But since Esther has been selected, they are brought together. And the real pieces of information that we see that I want to note up front are regarding Mordecai's position and Esther's obedience. You see, what we find in verse 19 is that following Esther being chosen, that Mordecai is now sitting at the king's gate. You know, for us, like we read that and we're just like, 
Big whoop. He's just sitting at the gate like maybe he should get a job. And what is he doing? He's just hanging out, right? But no, it's very important because actually what that meant is it's a very big deal because to sit at the king's gate meant that Mordecai either already was before Esther became queen or after she became had been placed as an official that worked for the king. And so whether it was before or after, what we already need to notice, man, God's providence is at work here. I think you even see in the previous uh, verses as Esther is, has been taken that Mordecai daily is in the court asking questions concerning her. So he has some presence, some kind of power, some position. But he's at the king's gate. But the second thing I want to note in verse 20 is we see, again, Esther's obedience. And it's kind of one of those moments where you're just like, well, why is this even in the text? It doesn't seem to really fit in what's going on, but I believe that it does. In verse 20, it says that she had not yet made known her identity as a Jew to anyone because she was obedient to the commands of Mordecai, even as she was when she was a child. I believe that's key to know because this is actually the second time that we've seen this come out in the text. First being in chapter 2, verse 10. And I believe that it's placed in here in the text to remind us that in the midst of God's work in getting Esther to the place that she finds herself, there has still been great compromise of, a great compromise of identity that has taken place both in Mordecai and in Esther's life. We see these little moments, we saw them last week, these little moments of compromise. You see, the name Esther is actually her Persian name. Hadassah would be her Hebrew name. And so she is living in the identity of a Persian. There's this wrestling, there's this moment where she hasn't revealed who she really is. You see, we also see this compromise in Mordecai as well. Because guess what? Mordecai is pushing for this. Don't make your name known yet. Don't let them know who you are. But in the midst of this, and we're going to see it even more today and then next week, you're going to see the wrestling is going to continue to take place. God, because guess what? They're still alive, so God is still using and working. We're going to see that work come out for His glory and the rescue of His people. You see, I think as we hear this and see this, I think this should also make us wrestle with the threat of compromising our own identity as believers in the face of difficulty and circumstance. And how easy it is for us to simply mask our faith, to save face, or to engage in the satisfaction of the world when it meets our desires and needs. And it's so easy to kind of step in and out of that, is it not? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll follow Jesus when it's easy, when it uh, doesn't get in the way of my own life. I'll follow Jesus when it benefits me, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just cover it up for now. I, I won't uh, let anybody know who I really am and, and what I'm really called to do and, and what I'm really called to be as a follower of Jesus. Because it might make them uncomfortable or me uncomfortable. 
Or if I do that, there's going to be something expected of me. And so we get this picture. And then I'll just summarize what happens next. So Mordecai, in his position, working for the king, he hears about a plot by two of the king's guards who are angry with the king. And they decide, hey, we're going to try and kill him. Actually, what it says in the text is they're going to lay hands on him, which is poor definition for our day. To lay hands on somebody now is to, I'm going to beat you up. But in that day and time, to lay hands on somebody, like you went all the way. Because guess what? If you lay hands on the king and don't kill him, somebody's going to lay hands on you the next day and they are going to kill you. And so these two guards, they decide, no, we're done with this king. We're going to kill him. And Mordecai hears about this. And so what he does is he goes, uh, he has contact with Queen Esther and he goes to her and he shares this information. And then Esther goes to the king and she shares the information on behalf of Mordecai. So the king investigates the matter and it's found to be so, which leads to these two men being executed. Now, Now as we hear that, I think that that's an interesting move. Like why would Mordecai stop this murder plot from happening? Like he's a Jew under the authority and reign of a foolish king. Because again, Xerxes is not really an example of what a king should be, right? So why doesn't he just keep his mouth shut? Why didn't he say, well, I hope it all works out for the best. I hope the next king's a little better. Now it could have been that he knew that, man, if they kill the king, what are they going to do to the queen? And that could be the answer. But the thing is, is again, we don't get the answer. But I believe what we do get, while we don't get the answer to that question in the story, what we do get in his action is a call to do the same. What I mean by that is this. In Galatians 6, Paul states that whenever we have the opportunity, we are to work for the good of all. Especially those who belong to the household of God. Now, now, when we commonly read that, we skim over the all, do we not? We, we skim over the all or we change that word out to, or we, maybe we expand it, all who uh, I like, all who I love, all who support the sports team I support, all who do this, all who do, but not those. But no, the text says all, and then it says especially those who belong to the household. And so we can tend to skim over the all and lean into the good of those being that belong to the household of God. You see, in doing so, we miss out on the truth of the gospel in such a deep and transformative way. For Jesus would say in Matthew 5 that His kingdom is one that, man, you're to bless those who persecute you. You're to love and serve those that revile you. Matthew 5.41, Jesus says, man, if someone strikes you on the cheek, which is a, which is a form of deep respect, disrespect, what are you to do? Lay hands on them. No. He says, turn the other cheek. And if someone wants to sue you for your shirt, Jesus says, give them your cloak too. Give them that which would keep you warm. If someone says, hey, walk with me a mile, which in Roman culture, if a Roman soldier came up to you, and, uh, and they said, hey, carry my stuff, carry my shield, carry my sword and my supplies. For a, You would have to carry it up to a mile. But what does Jesus say? 
Go to. It's way different, right, than how we commonly think. Paul in Romans 12 says we're not to repay evil for evil, but are to give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And wherever and whenever possible to live at peace with everyone, not seeking to take matters into our own hands. Then Paul says, let's just save wrath for God. Landon Dowden in his commentary on Esther stated that the gospel of Christ transforms the way we view and treat the people who harm us most. The gospel, Dowden shares, demands that we not treat our enemies as they deserve to be treated. Rather, we treat our enemies as Christ has treated us. You see, what makes the church so special is not just how we treat other believers, but how we treat those who hate us because of Christ. For we are disciples of Him who died for His enemies. Like Scripture says, we were enemies of God. And it goes way further than we often do. Like we just disassociate. Maybe we say some mean things. Talk about them behind their back. No, no. In Scripture, like what it, the term is like, we're violent against God. Warring against Him. And so today, is this your heart? Like in your life, is your response towards those whom you might describe as an enemy? And let me, let me stop there. Man, man, for some, like... Maybe today, like you've like maybe you've made enemies within the church. That's a scary place to be. So in your life, is your response towards those you might describe as an enemy, one of love or hate? Is your life marked by love towards your enemy that proclaims the good news that while you yourself were an enemy, that God loved you and gave himself up for you so that you might be an enemy no more? You see, this is what we're called to church. But my fear is that so often we seek to take wrath and judgment into our own hands instead of loving in radically sacrificial ways that confound the broken world around us. Guess what? There's more than enough wrath, envy, murder, anger, and slander to go around in the world today. May we invite people to the better news of Jesus who came to save his enemies by suffering on their behalf. And may we do it by dying to self. By serving. By giving. And so with that before us, let's get back to the story. So what we see in the next part in the text is that as as a result of Mordecai's whistleblowing. And Father, following the, the snuffing out of this attempted who Xerxes takes a moment to have all the details written down in his presence. You see, Xerxes wants this to be remembered. He wants to remember it. And guess what? He does it in his own presence. You see, this is a big deal. Because historically, Persian kings were known for handsomely rewarding those that had served them well. But Mordecai only gets his name and his actions written down in a book. Now for a moment, I I just want you to place yourself in Mordecai's shoes. So you've just foiled an assassination plot against the king and return. All you get is your information written in a book. 
No parade. I mean, he just threw a 187 day party. You get no parade. You get no feast. You get no party in your honor. How would you feel in that moment? Now, now let's move from Mordecai's story to our own lives. How do you feel when someone takes notice of something you did but does not reward you in the way you expect or felt you deserved in that moment? Like if it's me, I'm raging. Probably inside. But I'm upset. And if I'm honest, I don't know that I would look out for the well-being of the king again. But, but that's what we do, right? That, that's the struggle in our soul at times because all of us have this deep desire for what? For immediate gratification. We're conditioned. And guess what? It doesn't have to be trained up in us, although it is both caught and taught. That when we do something good, we should deserve something good immediately. We saw this like, as our kids have grown up. Like, you know, we would get them to do chores and we'd say, okay, I want you to clean your room. And then guess what? We'd give them a little bit of an allowance. But guess what? Like, it doesn't mean you're going to get an allowance for cleaning your room every time. We're just trying to show you the value of hard work. And so the next time they clean their room, they come in the living room and they're like. (laughs) I'm like, what's up, man? I cleaned my room. Great. Well, don't I get some money? Well, no. But hey, how about you go do the dishes? Oh, well, can I get paid for it? Well, no. Like this is just part of being a part of the Ogle household. We just help out with one another, right? Well, I don't like that, Dad. Well, guess what? Tough. Uh, no. um, yeah, probably. Um, but that's it, right? But guess what? Like we can look at that. We can think about that. But guess what? We do the exact same in just different ways. We go about life. We, we uh, think that, that, that we, if we do good, we deserve good immediately. Like as a culture, but as humans, like we, we stink at waiting, do we not? Uh, especially when we feel like we did something or deserve something. I mean, I... I called my wife Haley caught me doing this on Friday. We went to a restaurant for brunch and the waitress was just maybe a little too long. And I just said, I said, she was just standing in the corner. I just said to myself under my breath, Haley heard it. And I said, all right, let's go. Cause I was hungry and I felt I had done a good job. Intermittent fasting. <laughs> Colin's like, Amen. Uh, and she looked at me and she said, don't be that guy. And I went, I know. I'm sorry. But if it's not like this, we're done. Like if the internet slows down a tick, we throw our computer through the wall. You see, sadly, much of the time we simply feel we deserve something simply because we are. If you find yourself walking around your home or your workplace or, you know, a store and you're like, do you know who I am? 
Like, do you know who I am? I don't think you do. Man, you add doing something good on top of that, and it's a recipe for disaster. Let me just quickly explain why. First, guess what? If you go about life doing things with the hope and the desire and and the need, the end-all, be-all being that you get gratified in return, if you get it, it'll never be enough. It's never enough, right? Like you need more of it and more of it. And, and, and the little bit you got that time, like a drug, is not enough the next time. It's got to be bigger and grander. And man, do I believe that we should encourage and compliment and, and, and uh, thank one another? Yes. But in receiving it, may we... As Jim did earlier. May we realize that it, it's, it's not for me and about me. It's good, but it's not ultimate. Because, man, our identity should be set in Jesus. See, if you get it, it's never enough. It always leaves you desiring the next hit. And guess what? It'll always fade away. The need for self-gratification, be it immediate or delayed, never provides what we believe it will promise. But secondly, if you don't get it, and that's ultimately what you need, it'll do one of two things. It'll either crush you or it'll drive you to anger. It'll crush you. Because guess what? Self-gratification cannot hold the weight of your deeper need. Only Jesus can give you an identity that's secure. Or you just throw a fit. Any of you ever thrown a fit? Internally or externally? Recently? When you don't get what you feel you deserve? Guess what? Again, it's not just your children. It's not just this generation. It's not just what it's. It's all of us in moments and times. Because again, I said this a couple of weeks ago. At times we can guess what? We start drinking our own Kool-Aid. But, but that fit might not just look like you flailing on the ground. I hope it doesn't. But sometimes what that looks like is you just turn your head and you, you, you set your face and you say, guess what? They didn't give it to me, but I'm going to show them. Any provers in the room? I think I, I shared this story a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in a quip. Um, maybe not. Uh, but I remember right out of high school, uh, man, I had this mentality that, man, I'm just going to I'm going to show my dad, you know. I'm going to show him. I did it. He wasn't around growing up. And I got this bright idea as an 18-year-old that I'm going to call him. And so I called him one night. And he answered. And I just, I went at him. I said, I did this. I did this. I did that. I didn't need you. You know, blah, 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 blah. And all he responded with was, I didn't ask you to call. Click. 
And I'd like to say that in that moment, I just went like this. Okay, I'm done. No. There are moments where I still want to prove and show it. There are moments where I'm like, oh, I wish he would just look on Facebook. He would see the facade. But also he'd see a lot of really amazing things. Not just simply about me, but just about what God has done in my life. And so I want to show them. Maybe for you, that's maybe your bent and tendency. I'm going to show them and they're going to give me what I deserve. Maybe you just shut down, shut off or shut out those that you feel haven't given you what you believe you deserve. Oh, you didn't say that. I'm never going to talk to you again. Maybe your tendency is just say, oh, I'm going to move on to the next person, place, or thing in the hopes that it will meet the desire that you need that only Jesus can fill. Guess what? I believe this is one of the biggest issues that I have with the prosperity gospel. Is what the prosperity gospel says. If you do good, you get good in return. Like that. It's not scriptural. Tim Keller once said that if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small and it's going to rattle around in there. Not only is it going to rattle around, it's going to wreak havoc in your life. Which leads to my last point regarding the problem with immediate self-gratification, which is this. We as worshipers who, guess what, you are always worshiping something. We have to come to understand that our responsive worship towards God is not to do good for the sake of feeling gratified, but for the sake of giving God the glory that only He deserves. And so today in your life, is it enough to simply know God and know that you are loved by God? Is it enough to have your name written down in the Lamb's book of life? Or do you need something more? If so, then man, live your life for the sake of others. If so, if it is enough, live your life for the sake of others and for the glory of God. But guess what? If it's not enough and you feel like you need something more, you will forever be let down because nothing else, no matter how uh, much good you do or how much gratification you will receive, will ever be enough. And at the end of the day, you will only be left wanting. Because at the end of the day, only He deserves all glory and honor and power forever. Amen. see, Mordecai only received his name being mentioned in a book. And we're going to have to wait another week to see if another reward is going to come. We're also going to have to wait another week to see how he truly begins to respond to this. But again, the real question for Mordecai and for us is whether or not doing good for the glory of God rather than our own glory and gratification is enough. And so as we respond, just a few things I want you to just think and wrestle and Uh, even engage with today is first, how much you need to seek the good of others for the sake of the gospel being made known to all. Like maybe you need to repent today for either having a calloused heart towards others or a mind that has forgotten that you too were once an enemy of God and apart from His grace, you would still be. Along with that, I encourage you I challenge you to try to think of one way to serve and to seek to be at peace with someone around you this week. Here's just two quick ways you can do that. One's 
if just daily, instead of being so upset by someone, take time to pray for them daily. And part of this challenge is like, maybe go to those difficult people that kind of push on your buttons a little bit. Serve them. Pray for them. If you need encouragement on what that looks like, like read Romans 12 daily. Secondly, today, how might you need to wrestle with your own tendency to seek self-gratification over God's glory? And spend time today and this week processing your motivations for why you do what you do, expect what you expect, and desire what you desire for yourself and from others. And if you can't come to the end of that and needs, you know, get some biblical counseling for a little while. It's okay. Get into some community. Find some people in this room and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. I feel a little stuck. Like in your life, where do you find yourself pursuing immediate gratification? In what situations or relationship do you find yourself easily crushed or let down because you're looking for something only God can provide? Whatever that thing is or whoever that is, lay it down. They can't carry the weight. Instead, be reminded of your identity in Christ. Don't shut down, shut off, and shut out those you feel have not given you what you believe you deserve. Again, remember, we all deserved wrath, but in Christ we receive that which... That we, which we don't deserve because He received what we did deserve. And then lastly, take time this week to reflect on the saving work of the gospel in your own life. Not just when you got saved, but your daily need of grace. You see, it's always harder to seek self-gratification when you take time to remember that only God deserves the glory because you could never save yourself. And so that's what I want to invite you to this week. process and think and wrestle and to allow God just to move. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And as they make their way up, I want to give you a little bit of time to respond. And then we're going to share in communion together. So if you are a follower of Jesus, saved by the blood of Christ, I want to invite you to come and share in communion. And as you share in communion today, I want you to remember That Jesus took what you deserve. That it's not, this symbol is not a representation of our blood and our body, although it should have been because we deserve the wrath. It was His, and so He's the only one worthy of glory and honor and praise. As we share in this today, as we're reminded of that, may that in turn empower us to be proclaimers of better news to the world around us. May it empower us to love those who are around differently, even our enemy. And may in the midst of moments where things look bleak or we don't know what's going to happen next and we're wrestling with the temptation of, of, of self-gratification, may we trust that God has a purpose and that He will keep His promises. And today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you abstain from that. But if you want to know what it means, if you want to know why we do this, if you don't know why we uh, celebrate and proclaim uh, through worship and song and through His Word, 
this hope that we have, I would love to talk to you about that. Jeremy would love to talk to you about that. One of our elders that are here uh, or any of our partners, they would love to talk to you about that. If you know one of them, just grab them and say, hey, I need to know about this Jesus. So I'm going to give you just a moment to reflect and then I'm going to pray and I'm going to have Jim and Matt come forward and they're going to present the elements. Once you take them, you'll go back to your seat and I'll lead us together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you uh, that, that, it, that it draws us in and it causes us to look at where you've brought us, where you have us, and where we're going and the hope that that brings. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. God, for those that know you, the Lord, the reality of the gospel would radically change the way we love, serve, and care for others. And that we would constantly uh, hold, as, a, as Paul states in Romans 12, a posture of humility. A posture that seeks to bring your name glory, not ourselves. That we would come to understand that while uh, a thank you, an encouragement is, is, is good, it is not ultimate. Because our identity is set in you. God, I thank you for this church family and I pray that we would be just a beautiful picture of your bride. That proclaims the hope of your glory to the world around us. In Jesus' name.